welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla, working for NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and NHS Somerset Clinical Lead for Mental Health. And we're really pleased to be joined today by our guest, Dr. Inmar from the University of Exeter. Inmar, very warm welcome to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And we're going to talk about uh, mindfulness and resilience. But before we do, please tell us a bit about yourself and your story. It's a long story, so I'm going to keep it brief because there are lots of things we could be talking about. I'm a psychologist by background. I started 30 years ago. So I, I studied for 12 years and I just love our human condition. I'm a curious researcher. I've been doing research for almost 20 years now. And I'm an innovative resilience trainer as well as a kind of leadership developer. And can I ask some very simple, basic questions just to set the scene for our listeners? So you've mentioned mindfulness, which a lot of people will have heard about and have a half idea about, and, and resilience, which is another concept people may have heard about, but not knowing exactly what they mean. Can you just provide us with some context, context as to, to what you understand by these two phrases? So mindfulness, the way in which I use it is not about meditation. Mindfulness is about being in the present moment in a non-judgmental way and accepting what is happening right now. So we are aware of what is happening. We don't push it away. We are just fully there accepting it. For that, we don't need to meditate, although meditation is helping us kind of develop that ability. But in the different trainings that I've done, I develop what I call mindfulness on the go techniques, that is to bring us into that state of mind. And then resilience, for me, resilience is about, I try to divide it into three different phases. There is a bit of a, contro no controversy, but different authors in the literature that mention it, they talk about it differently. But for me, at the basic level, it's about being able to kind of cope with whatever is coming to us. It could be the daily stresses. The daily stressors can be, can kind of generate almost like chronic um, adversity by just a, a stress, stress, stress can become so chronic that it can be like a big adversity in itself with different qualities. So being able to cope with it is at the basic level. The second level is being able to, in a way, we are not only coping, but we are learning from, from it. So we are growing. And at the third level, one that not many people are there, but one that can be achievable is we are so resilient that we are waiting for the challenges to come. We smile at them. We are really, where is the challenge coming? Because I want to use it. I'm grateful for them. But it depends on our growth and where we are, then we just, we can be at the basic level being able to cope with what life is throwing at us or really welcoming the challenges or the stress. That sounds very exciting because the word resilience comes, I think, from the Latin about bounce back ability. So we're our ability to bounce back from challenges. And they say that what what doesn't uh, that, that, that we are given no challenge that is bigger than us, but sometimes they will stretch us. And uh, what what doesn't break us uh, will make us stronger. So our challenge is to, as you say, 
embrace our challenges and to grow. But I've given a little bit of sort of um, commonplace thinking about it. What does the science say? Yeah, before I tell you about the science, I wanted to say that, yes, bouncing back, as you say, is a traditional definition. But we know that if we bounce back, and that means that we are just coming quickly, we are not being transformed by it. So then what the a more appropriate definition in a way is coming back from adversity, being transformed by it. So not just bouncing back like without effort, because when we bounce back, if we haven't done the appropriate processing, what will happen there? Yeah. So a, a theory I came across a long time ago was Kolb's learning theory, which is that we have an experience, we reflect on it, and we learn from it, and that way we gain wisdom. Does that have any relevance to what you're talking about? Yes, that will be an ideal way of processing challenges or conflicts or whatever is happening to us. And when you were talking about science, well, I could spend the next two or three hours talking about science and resilience. But something that is coming up to my head now when we are thinking of coming back is that there is a meta-analysis that has demonstrated. Do you know what a meta-analysis is? For the audience, so a meta-analysis is a study of many different empirical studies. So it's like an like a study of the studies that we can trust. So in that meta-analysis, what they have discovered is that when people use avoidance or they neglect their emotions, those people who tend to use these avoidance or neglecting strategies when emotions are coming up. Those people, according to this meta-analysis, tend to have more likelihood to develop cardiovascular disease and cancer. That doesn't mean that if you are having that style, you are going to develop that disease. But what it means is that if we are having that style, then we may have a little extra motivation to see how can we process difficult emotions in a way in which it could be not only healthier for our minds, but also our bodies and in the long term. So avoidance is a bad strategy uh, that we should not do. What strategies are the best, according to the meta-analyses? Okay, in this meta-analysis, they were just focusing on these two different type of strategies. But there is a, another review paper called the Neuroaffective model of resilience. And in this neuroaffective model of resilience, they are talking about three different, and do you want me to explain what is neuroaffective? Yeah. Okay. Neuroaffective has to do with kind of cognitive with the mind, with the brain, but affective has to do with our emotions. So is what if in a way we could say, what is the holistic way in which we can develop our resilience? And what they are saying there, something I think is fascinating, is there are, and there are three different ways in which we can go about it. And each of them have a correspondence in our brain. I'm not going to focus on the specifics, but it's all tapping with the different parts of the brain. One of them, the traditional one, has to do with down, kind of it, taking away the negative. So whenever uh, whenever we are having negative thoughts, whenever we are having kind of negative emotions, dealing with that. 
That's the traditional way in which the literature and in the past we've been dealing with resilience. We've been using cognitive uh, behavioral therapy and things to change your thoughts. Fine. But the interesting part is that now they have discovered that what we need to do as well is to kind of focus on the positive, kind of up, up. Um, how will I call it? We need to make sure that we are not only focusing on, on kind of keep taking away the negative, but really being, building the positive aspects that can help us. For example, in there, they are really talking about building our physiological um, capacity to deal with stress and adversity by doing exercise, the microbiome, by doing um, the sleeping, food, all those things. But interestingly, something I love is the fact that they talk about laughter. They talk about smiling. They talk about all this, all the things that we take for granted. We think it's not that important, but it is. It has an impact on the brain. And the other one is about transcending the self. So then they talk about being connected to nature, then awe and wonder and spirituality, all the things that, again, sometimes we take for granted. But they have, they have studied how physiologically connects with parts of the brain that is making us more resilient. And one of the, and I also love the fact that they have studied altruism and gratitude and how they change neurologically, how our brain is rewired. So there are lots of different things that we could be doing that will be enriching our lives. And it will be giving... And certainly I've, I, I've read studies that say if you do things like exercise, even if you don't feel them, if you laugh and smile, even if you're not feeling happy, that then kind of makes your brain follow on afterwards. Is, is that what you're referring to? Is that the same sort of studies? Yeah, completely. And actually, yoga laughter is uh, yoga laughter, following on what you said, because scientists discovered it doesn't matter whether it's real or not. Some people put a set of practices so we can laugh and kind of fake laughter, but they call it yoga laughter. So yoga laughter is one of the techniques that I use when I've been training leaders in a retreat, but also prisoners and also kind of um, uh, guards and in, a, in many different cities. What I'm trying to say is that yoga laughter is one that you can see immediately how the energy and how how people are just changes because everything gets released. And then sometimes what we need is a bit of yoga laughter, and then we can talk about serious things that can go in. I'm very interesting. I've often heard it said that the same muscles that we use for laughter, ha, 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 are the same ones that we use for sobbing. <laughs> and in some ways, it doesn't matter which one you use because you're, open inverted commas, getting the issue off your chest, close inverted commas. Um, so I've heard that. Uh, going back to what you were saying just before the, the yoga laughter, I was really struck by the number of approaches that you mentioned that seem to nourish us, to nurture us. And I'm wondering whether they're nourishing our brain, our mind, or the who we are, our soul. And, and uh, maybe I'm being slightly controversial in that, but I'd be really interested to know your thoughts on that. Well, um, what I'm doing now is I'm trying to to develop a set of resilience tools that are going to be 
talking about is the entry point the mind is the entry point the emotion so is the entry point the body because i kind of the mind the body and the emotions as you know they are all interconnected and the soul some people are talking about the soul other people prefer not to go there they call it about kind of self-transcendence yes. aspect of ourselves yes. so what i what i think is that it's difficult to kind of distinguish this is only having an impact on my mind yes. because my mind can have an impact on the body but if you wanted i could try to find an example that's that's fascinating and, and i know we want to look at some of your work but i'm i'm fascinated by the effect of nature on who we are and it strikes me that our, our minds and our neuro our neurophysiology has been developed or has developed over millions, well, hundreds of thousands of years against a backdrop of nature uh, and blues and greens and patterns of weather and patterns of flowers and and sounds. And in a way, perhaps that's supporting our function by just being there, not exactly as white noise, but it's it's something that that if we don't have, we feel the lack of. Completely. And there are quite a few things in there. I don't know if you heard about the nature deficit disorder. Right. Please so explain it, So then there is now, there are quite a few studies on the nature deficit disorder. And it's how when we are not in nature, then there are certain things that are affected. And But also they've been doing some research in which the soil, the 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 smell of the soil and some of the things when we are touching them it also has an impact on our brain so as you said this been yes we are part of nature we have isolated ourselves from nature but when we spend time there things change and when you were talking about identity our identity this is something that when i take senior leaders from different places into the retreat a retreat in especially in a place called embecom being in nature for three days it really gives a quality to the training that goes deeper because then it's not just you are not just a doctor and i'm not just whatever no we are all together part of nature and when we kind of connect to that togetherness and part of nature we can go deeper and we can expand Inma, can I ask you about something you mentioned earlier? You said about prisoners, and I know you did what must have been very challenging work in Kenya uh, with prisoners who clearly had no access to nature. And when you say when you say to them, "Look, I want you to dwell on the positive," they must have had very little positive to to be able to to think about. I would have thought. Tell me about that and and how you managed to improve the lot of people in in such a difficult situation. Well, first, I wanted to say that what I did first was to train the director of rehabilitation and the prison governors. So then without that training, this wouldn't have been possible. The reason why I'm saying, and the guards, the reason why I'm saying that is because in my work, I'm interested in systemic change, not just one individual, not just one prisoner. So then what we co-created, I was just one piece in the puzzle. What we co-created was the, what they call a mindfulness revolution. And why am I saying that? Because what happened there is that, okay, I brought the knowledge, if you want, I brought the techniques, but they kind of co-created, they shared the knowledge with their fellow inmates. They took my techniques and then they took, they, they took it to another angle. 
There is one technique that they teach is the wall and the window. <laughs> there are no windows in, in the prisoners, in the prison. But one of the things that they did, coming back to your question of nature, is that they were looking to the sky, to the clouds. And didn't teach them to do that. They told me that later on. That's what I'm saying. It was a revolution. It's not about they assimilated my knowledge and that, no, they understood it. They embodied it and they were shedding it. They were looking at the clouds. And then what one of them was telling me, one, that he was about to commit suicide and then he didn't, is that when things were kind of getting really claustrophobic in the prison and they could see no exit and nothing else. Then by looking at the clouds and looking at how they were moving, they were getting a sense that there is something out there. These clouds are clouds that other people have seen. The clouds move. They, and by connecting just with the clouds, then they were able to get not a sense of nature how we described it before, but a sense of something bigger than just them being inmates in a particular prison. How interesting. And just to tease out two thoughts, and I'd be interested in your comments there. When we look up, our emotions change compared to if we look down. Something psychological is happening that we tend to be uplifted if we're looking up rather than being downcast, as the phrase is. And the other thing that I've heard, and I'd be interested in your comments, is that Harmonious patterns in nature, whether it's waves or whether it's trees wafting in the breeze or whether it's clouds, seem to have an effect on our psyche in a way that concrete straight walls and, and harsh lighting do not. I don't know how or why, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. I don't know of any studies or any research on that, but that makes perfect sense. That makes absolutely perfect sense. That's a good point. Yeah. And were you able to make a big difference? Did you do, study it scientifically to say, yes, we could improve the mental health? Of course, we, we know the mental health of people in prisons here and around the world is, is dire, isn't it? So is this something that could be replicated in this country? Well, um, we have plenty of evidence about the impact that it had. So then we sent an independent evaluator, then we have quantitative research, then we have plenty of uh, testimonials. But it wasn't just mindfulness in that case. It was mindfulness and togetherness. We created a new identity. We were mindful leaders. And when you develop a new identity as a mindful leader, then what happens is that it's not just the little mindfulness techniques that someone has taught you. It's that because that's who you are. Then you practice differently. And then what we, what we we even published a paper in which we saw the predicted but the predicted um, kind of capacity of mindfulness and identification with a mindful leader on mental health, resilience, and use of drugs and alcohol. And even the people, because what I did in 2015, I, I trained the pioneers. And then every year I was going and then I was training more. But these pioneers were training others. And then I was having Zoom calls with them. So again, it wasn't me as an expert. We co-created. And when you were talking, Andrew, before about crime, there was one of them, I think that my second or third year, I was working at that point with 18 mates in small circles, talking about acceptance and forgiveness. But some point one of the men really strong big man got up 
do you know who a strong man is? And we all look at, at him. And remember, this is the maximum security prison, death penalty, the largest maximum security prison, black man, hardcore. And we look at him, who is a strong man? A strong man is a man who dares to cry. Oh, what a powerful strong man. It's a man who dares to cry. And what the other inmates did, they all agree with him. And there was only one question. One of them said, yeah, but when do you cry? Do you cry when you come home and your wife and children are crying because there is no food? Or do you cry afterwards? That was the only question. So this again comes to the idea that these men, and then I also train a group of women in a prison of women, they co-created, they, they really consensualized on things that were important. Fascinating. You have been inspiring hope and support there. And do, do tools from humanity, from from um, part of being human, really, uh, such as song and poetry and art, are they relevant? They are extremely relevant. And one of the things we did there is that we created a sense of togetherness, but within it, a, ten, a sense of uniqueness. So then we have one of the inmates there that was trained by others that became a mindful rapper. So then he 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 created a song of mindful leaders anthem and mindfulness revolution. And then we have actually we have one of the inmates there on my third year. He read a poem in French. Now this inmate is back in Congo and he's training war refugees because the identities, so he is liberated and he's training with refugees. And then they have, a, they created a play from mindfulness, from blindfulness to mindfulness. So yes, as you said, all the things that have to, all songs, poetry, all those things are really important and essential because they are part of us. You've mentioned the word togetherness uh, several times. Do you, do you want to explain a little bit more what you mean by that because i think uh, again it, it's one of these words that most of us think we know what it means but i i imagine you're using it in a, a very specific way aren't you well in um quite a bit of my background is i'm an identity researcher and i truly know believe and i have experience from the power of belonging to the same group the sense of belonging and identifying with a group is something that we cannot underestimate. In fact, there are a couple of books from some of my colleagues called The Social Cure, and is referring to this sense of, again, togetherness. So for me, togetherness is when, for example, we are, in theory, together into this Zoom, but there is not a strong sense of, of togetherness just yet, because you belong to one institution, I belong to another one, and, but if we were to develop kind of what do we have in common? What can we build on with these inmates? First, we had in common that we were imperfect humans trying to improve ourselves. Then what we have in common is that we all wanted the world to be a better place. And then we built on it. And then we had in common the fact that we were all mindful leaders. So then that's how we created a sense of togetherness. And would that include togetherness with nature and the clouds that you were talking about earlier and uh, animals and, and so on? Or are you, are you just using it to mean people? In, within the social identity approach, it's just people. But I know 
that the sense of being feeling a sense of togetherness with nature and with other that has a huge benefit, a huge impact on our own resilience as well. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And using all this wisdom that you've learned in Kenya and 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 many years of training and and research and the other learning that you've described, how has that helped your Resilience Alive program that you're doing? And what what are your goals for the program? So the Resilience Alive is uh, something that I'm just started. In fact, I hope David is going to be well. He's already part of a team. So would I? What I discovered That's, is that sorry, just just to just to interrupt for our our audience, David sorry. is our producer, um, and he's oh. background at the moment. So please carry on, Ima. Yeah. So well, one of the things that is very clear for me is that resilience is not static. So different factors are going to have an impact on our resilience levels of resilience on the day. And then the other thing, as I said, that the groups we belong to are going to have an impact on our resilience. So then in this scene of Resilience Alive, one of the things I want to bring is that element of during the day we can be more or less resilient and we can change that with self-leadership. And also the groups that we belong to can make us feel more or less resilient. Yeah. And then the other thing is the fact that if I've been trained in a resilience program, if I'm going to be a champion and then train someone else, then the program is going to be alive. That's why it's also Resilience Alive. And can you point us, I believe you've got a website, haven't you, that describes this. I hope it has it in uh, video as well as audio, because uh, Andrew and I are, are seeing you with the hand uh, gestures, which which make it all much clearer. But I'm, unfortunately, our listeners are, are missing that. They're missing they're missing Andrew and myself as well, which is probably a good thing. But uh, yes, tell we us about see, your website. We can also see your beaming smile, Inmar, which is lighting up our, <laughs> our programme. Yeah. Yes. Well, I just I just opened it, so I don't have much content there yet. And it's part of a university, so I can sh- it's resilience alive, but something before and something later. I can I can send we'll, it to you. But we'll, we'll the, again, the with, yeah. with the thing again with resilience alive, this is not my project. It's the same that in Kenya. I'm just one piece of puzzle. So whoever wants to be part of the program can be there. In fact, I had one of these dreams that in order to, we will have anchors. So then we could have people, for example, from hospice care, children, a housewife, that they will be doing bracelets on things like that. And then these bracelets will mean that we are part of the same tribe, the same togetherness, whatever we want to call it. So then what we will have is everyone in the community come have a purpose within this resilience alive. We just have to be ourselves and give what we have. And then the community can be better for it. And then I have far more more ideas, but I don't think we have much time. That's fascinating. Part of the human condition is that as egos and from childhood on, we feel separate. But actually, we know that modern physics tells us that everything is interconnected, uh, that everything is is um, related to in some way to everything else and perhaps we're all co-creatively living life rather than life living through us or perhaps life is living through us and uh, you're describing togetherness you're describing uh, effects from nature and from clouds and reconnecting to nature and nature deficit disorder there's a bigger picture that's bigger than medicine isn't there that's 
probably yes. quite important to the art of living and the art of being a human and 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 prospering yes yes completely that's why resilience is it's kind of bigger than what some people think about just the little things resilience is about uh, yeah anyway now my mind is going into five different directions <laughs> because when i'm thinking we only have few minutes left then I said, how can I make it useful and not go all over? But yes, I fully agree and, with what you're saying, Andrew. And you mentioned about bracelets and how that pulls people together. Um, I won't embarrass people with my musical taste, but I recently went to a concert where we all had bracelets that lit up all around the stadium. And it was wonderful feeling part of that um, that community of, of everybody together. It was a, a, an extraordinary experience. But as you say, sadly, we, we are coming to the end of, uh, of our time. What messages would you like to leave us uh, and leave our listeners from the, the many fascinating things that you've studied over the years? What are, what are the main things people can take away? Um, and I also see here a question about what systemic change would I like to see across yes. society? So then I think that, okay, so linking both questions together, what I would like us to know deep within us is that we are all needed, all of us. All of us, we are an absolute gift to each other and to our communities. So if we were to truly connect with the gift that we are, and if we were to work together, then the systemic change will be but just each of us doing our bit, each of us sharing what we know, connecting people. So that's that's what we could do. And by doing that, because that's what happened in the prison. They were being themselves the best versions of themselves. And they were kind of con contributing to each other in whatever they could, whatever they wanted. And that's my hope is that in this Resilience Alive project with the NHS, now we'll do that we can really tap into the sense that together we can. Together we can. Interesting. So we have to connect actively with each other in order to make things go better in a world that seems to be more and more disconnected. And can I thank you for inspiring us and being connected with us and with our listeners for the last 30 minutes. I found it fascinating, inspiring. And, and thank you, Inma. And continue the good work. And I, I hope you'll come back and, and tell us again what you're, what you're doing with the Resilience Alive programme. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your questions and for hosting this podcast. Inma, Peter, thank you so much. And everybody, thank you for listening and go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board. <laughs>